0: Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Energy Connects podcast. I'm your host Chiranjeeb Sengupta. The energy sector plays a major role in deciding the future of the world in the 21st century. And as one of the strongest voices today in developing new energy resources and in the energy transition, India offers unprecedented possibilities for the energy sector in the 21st century. Now this was evident earlier this month when thousands of global energy leaders, energy companies, CEOs and experts gathered in the South Indian city of Bengaluru, where the Honourable Indian Prime Minister Srinarendra Modi opened the inaugural in- India Energy Week. Held under the theme of growth, collaboration, transition, India Energy Week was the first major event of G20 under India's presidency in 2023. It convened more than 40,000 energy professionals, 500 international speakers, and 8,000 international delegates from over 100 countries. Now, as India works on its roadmap to secure its energy needs in a reliable, affordable, and sustainable manner, India Energy Week offered a fantastic platform for energy sector leaders, stakeholders, and policymakers to exchange ideas. To talk more about India's quest for energy security, its role in the global energy arena, and in securing a sustainable future for humanity, I am joined by our guest for today, Vandana Hari, the founder of Vanda Insights, the Singapore-based provider of intelligence on global energy markets. Vandana has 25 years of experience in providing intelligence on the global oil and gas markets to executives in the industry and related services, government officials and agencies, as well as wealth managers. Before launching Vanda Insights in 2016, Vandana served as Asia Editorial Director at S&P Global Platts, overseeing the regional commodities section, news and pricing operations, and leading the company's business strategy. Many thanks for being with us here today, Vandana, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure to talk to you, Chirinji.
0: So. How was the initial impression of the inaugural India Energy Week? You know, it was so crowded, and there were thousands of people there every day. And uh, I would say it was one of the busiest energy shows uh, ever to be on its inaugural edition.
1: Yeah, so it was quite spectacular, wasn't it? Uh, foremost for me, the event represented India coming into its own as a major economic power and a consumer. Uh, that is mapping the way forward to meet the fast-growing energy needs of its 1.4 billion people, uh, the largest population in the world now. Um, And of course, it was much more than symbolic. It offered a platform uh, for the Indian government and the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Gas to get its voice across to the world, on its roadmap and its aspirations for balancing energy affordability and accessibility uh, with environmental targets. So as we know, India has targeted net zero by 2070. Um, I thought with a strong presence of industry leaders and thought leaders from around the world, uh, it provided for a cross-pollination of ideas and a meeting of the minds. Um, All the key topics were on the table and discussed openly in uh, an environment of mutual understanding. Uh, We had, of course, um, energy security, the role of fossil fuels, ensuring a just and stable transition to cleaner fuels, the alternatives available in that area, and the enabling technologies, you know, which were showcased in the exhibition halls. The world of energy is highly interconnected globally. So I think this kind of dialogue is crucial on a regular basis uh, to ensure that countries and multilateral organizations have a clear understanding of their position in the ecosystem and they work in collaboration, you know, not at cross purposes. India is being increasingly looked upon as a potential leader for emerging economies of the so-called global south in charting a course for a stable and sustainable energy transition. I think this event framed India as a strong contender for that role.
0: Right. I think uh, collaboration was one of the keywords there. And some of the uh, inaugurations or the announcements that we saw from the show, for example, the, the prime minister announced the 20% ethanol blend and uh, also... Um, inaugurated a solar cooker system developed by Indian Oil. Uh, What would your reactions be to those kind of initiatives?
1: So these are good initiatives. And I particularly like the idea of the hybrid solar cooker, which can be used indoors and seamlessly, even when the sun is not shining. Uh, Energy diversification needs to be an ongoing process. And uh, I think encouraging inventions such as the solar cooker uh, is key. To keeping that momentum of technological innovation going. Now for India of course energy diversification offers a degree of energy security as well as a way to reduce its dependence on fossil fuel imports uh, even if that is happening more at uh, the margins uh, right now. As far as biofuels are concerned I think what I like about India's biofuel strategy is that it is based on the so-called G2 or second generation feedstock, uh, which is essentially your agricultural waste. And that takes care of the food for fuel conflict, uh, which uh, sort of hampered efforts of the first generation biofuels. Now, as we know, India is an agrarian economy. You know, 70% of rural households households depend primarily on Agriculture for livelihood. So, if we can give farmers an additional source of income uh, from their waste, essentially, while also reducing the country's uh, fossil fuel dependence, I think it's two birds with one stone.
0: Absolutely. Around the same time uh, last year, you know, there was an environment of uh, heightened uncertainty and volatility around the energy markets with the start of the Ukraine conflict. And since then, The question that's been asked frequently is that, are countries and companies going to prioritize energy security over, let's say, the transition to renewables? And in the context of India, what would be your view?
1: So, indeed, I think uh, last year's energy crisis, and primarily driven by uh, the Ukraine invasion, uh, changed quite a lot of thinking around uh, the um, energy security aspect of of transition. Uh, Look, I don't see it as sort of one aspect versus another or trumping another. Um, I feel sustainability has to go hand in hand with supply security, affordability, accessibility. Uh, And that's true of all natural resources, not not just energy. I think what last year's energy crisis did, especially in Europe and the Western world, and call it a silver lining, even if you wish, was to restore some perspective to the objective of energy transition. I do see now a more level-headed thinking starting to emerge you know, as against the the sort of rash and bulldozing arguments for eliminating all fossil fuels as quickly as possible. You know, killing oil and gas before viable alternatives are available is a recipe for disaster. It's not the silver bullet for decarbonization. You cannot sacrifice economic growth. Uh, In fact, economies in trouble Will regress to the cheapest fuels, which also happen to be the dirtiest. You know, look at how coal use surged in 2022 across the world. You know, not just in Asia, uh, but also in Europe. What is good about India is that it has always taken a pragmatic approach uh, to the energy trilemma or quadrilemma, as some uh, have begun to call it now. I see the country starting to hone its strategy further. And uh, equally importantly, finding a voice on the on the global stage. You know, because these are complex, sensitive, and even divisive issues. So a not-so-popular viewpoint needs to be articulated cleverly, clearly, and diplomatically. Uh, I think India is ready for it, and uh, events like uh, India Energy Week prove that.
0: Right. And some of the demand supply side has also been redrawn like for example a lot of Russian crude is now being um, absorbed in India so how do you think that that has kind of uh, had an impact on the global energy markets
1: yeah I'm glad you raised that point because uh, I feel uh, India has unfairly come in for criticism for absorbing more Russian crude uh, you know which is ironically, exactly what the West wanted. Uh, It wanted to um, shun, so not import itself, Russian oil, but allow that oil to continue flowing into the global markets. And and that is uh, wise and that is critical, you know, because we can't afford any more shortages and and price spikes in, in oil. So We reckon India is now taking about 1.4 million barrels per day of Russian crude, uh, you know, going by January data, which is nearly 30 percent of its import requirements. Now, of course, contrast that with zero until the start of last year before the Ukraine war, so that the country has jumped in. Uh, to sort of fill that gap if, you know, if if the EU is not taking Russian oil, who will take it? Um, Not just that, but it's ramped up very, very quickly. Um, I find it a bit odd, frankly, that the country has had to defend its decisions and its moves, you know, had India and China not stepped in to buy uh, incremental crude, which was being rejected by the by the West, we would have had a massive hole in, in global supply and, and you know, much higher prices than what we are seeing today.
0: Right. And in, in the long run, let's say, how do you see this playing out? What does it mean for uh, uh, balancing uh, the markets?
1: So, as of now, the base case assumption uh, in the mar- energy markets is that, uh, unfortunately, the Ukraine war... Uh, is not coming to an end anytime soon. I know in recent days, the prospect of uh, peace negotiations has popped up again. I sincerely wish uh, that leads us to a a peaceful resolution. But as far as the markets are concerned, uh, the base case scenario is that things remain in a state of conflict, which means uh, a, a couple of things. First of all, the massive, unprecedented redrawing, rewiring of global trade uh, in oil as well as gas, you know, in the form of LNG, that has started last year, uh, is going to continue. Is going to consolidate uh, this year. So, to some extent, it's uh, you know just learning to live with the the new normal, uh, if you will. In in that case, of course, it's been. Um, a process of considerable upheaval. So far from what we have seen, uh, the crude imports uh, that have been banned or or seized by European Union have managed to find homes in China and India primarily. Now, uh, as we know, uh, starting February 5th, uh, the European Union stopped importing uh, seaborne are essentially all of Russian refined product imports. And that's going to be a slightly different ball game because uh, India and, and China, which were very natural, ready sinks, for uh, Russian crude are certainly not the same kind of sinks uh, for Russian refined products. So refined product, uh, Russian refined product will have to now travel longer distances to find new homes in farther away places. Could be uh, countries in Africa, Latin America. Uh, There are concerns over not enough tanker capacity available. It's a much more fragmented market. So, by no means has this upheaval ended. Um, the other aspect of this is that uh, Europe is now living with far less of Russian gas than what it has received for the past several years and, and decades even. and. Uh, so there's another rewiring going on there which is europe is importing more and more of lng now they do not believe in signing long term lng contracts like like asian economies do so they are looking for uh, more spot short term lng and uh, you know which which creates a sort of different kind of problems because even though Asia buys the bulk of its LNG requirements on a on a term basis it does buy a lot of spot LNG as well and if Europe uh, with its greater paying power is going to continue pulling away that LNG from the market then that means the incremental any incremental LNG that Asian you know the more price sensitive uh, Asian countries want to buy is going to be difficult for them so you know that takes us back to what I mentioned earlier about uh, countries then having to fall back more on coal for power generation, for for in, for instance. So, um, how long these changes, this reshuffling, will will last is actually anybody's guess. But uh, you know, it's markets are more in a one day at a time kind of mode, and um, as of now, they're just assuming that this um, reshuffle and this turbulence uh, will continue at least through the rest of this year.
0: Right. And do you think, like, for example, last year, there was a lot of speculation and anxiety uh, as Europe approached winter. Uh, However, I think more or less things uh, went smoothly and there was not really the kind of crisis that many people were anticipating. What's your take on that? And because there were so many different and often conflicting um, outlook on that. And how's this winter looking according to you?
1: yeah so it could be a short lived uh, relief so first of all in terms of uh, breathing room uh, undoubtedly that has happened uh, it was a much wild milder winter i was going to say wilder, certainly not a wild but a mild winter and uh, which was, uh, of course, came as a, a, an absolute blessing for uh, for Europe because its energy consumption, its, its gas consum- consumption essentially was much less than what a normal winter or or a harsher winter would have seen. And um, the prices have dropped, uh, gas prices have dropped, power prices have come off, you know, welcome relief uh, across Europe as a result of that. And um, as a sort of, um, trickle-down effect of that, Europe is entering the summer months, you know, which are equally important for the region to rebuild its gas inventories in preparation for the next winter. It's entering the summer months very, very comfortable on its gas stocks. So one could then assume uh, that the the summer is not going to be very difficult uh, for Europe to, to rebuild levels to where it needs them to be, you know, come uh, 23, 24 winter. But, uh, you know, the crux of this whole problem, the the turbulence in the markets remains. So one is of course, the shorter shorter term effect, which was the Ukraine war, uh, but a longer term effect also is that there's simply not enough investment happening in the upstream. And uh, in terms of um, in gas, it's not just, you know, producing, prospecting and producing gas, but also putting up uh, mega billion dollar liquefaction plants uh, to convert it to LNG to be shipped across the world. So, you know, these are um, sort of uh, bottlenecks which are worsening uh, over, the, over the past several years. And uh, it would have been all right. We would have, the world would have still managed had things uh not transpired the way they did with with the russian reshuffle of flows but you know when you, when uh, spare capacity is limited when investment is limited on top of that if, if you have a major uh upset like uh, like the sanctions and and the reshuffling of russian flows uh, it can it is actually recipe for more energy crisis ahead unfortunately
0: right And I think we'll journey back all the way to India in in light of that, uh, you know, very comprehensive uh, forecast and talk a little bit about one of the things that might help in that journey is is, uh, diversification of energy. And India, as you know, just before the show, before India Energy Week, uh, India announced a very, very ambitious uh, green hydrogen policy and lots of uh, uh, milestones there. Uh, in renewables. Also, India was one of the first countries to set up the International Solar Alliance way back in, I think, 2014. So what would your uh, take be on all the efforts that India is making in that regard?
1: So as far as green hydrogen is concerned, um, first of all, let us just acknowledge that hydrogen uh, is the talk of the town, uh, especially in uh, the policymakers, and industry uh, stakeholders who are very, very keenly focused on uh, trying to move their countries, their companies, um, and just generally consumers away from fossil fuels into uh, newer, greener greener forms of um, energy. Having said that, uh, hydrogen, I think we need to acknowledge as well, is a relatively nascent technology um, in terms of, um, you know, you have all the colors of hydrogen. It doesn't help. It confuses a lot of people. But uh, underlying that is basically, I think, the intent to ensure that we do not pursue a a potential new source simply because it is a new source. And, you know, Tagging green to the word hydrogen, and you know it just it just seems and feels cleaner and and better than the you know crude and um, natural gas and and so on. Green hydrogen essentially is uh, hydrogen, or at least the way India is looking at producing green hydrogen is through uh, electrolysis of water now um when we look at that mode uh, you know obviously we have to pay attention to how clean is the power the electricity that will be used for the for the electrolysis right now that unfortunately leads you into slightly murky waters because in India, well, of course, the country has been growing um, quite at a phenomenal rate, its uh, renewable power generation capacity. Um, the fact remains that the lion's share of India's power generation comes from coal. So while Coal's installed capacity is about 50% of the country's total. The actual power generation, obviously, because it's the cheapest form of uh, electricity, the actual power generation is nearly three quarters of um, India. Indian power generation that comes from coal. Um, and you know wind and solar uh, account for about a quarter of the country's installed uh, capacity going by the latest data uh, official data but account for just about 10% of the total power generation so to my mind it's good it's good to examine all these options but then uh, you know for green hydrogen you will have to and especially if you want to scale it up you would need to then essentially ramp up your uh, clean power generation, uh, you know, which has its own uh, issues, uh, aside from affordability, of course. So clean power, uh, the renewable power costs have dropped uh, substantially over the past several years. But then again, you know, when a country is fighting inflation, when it is, when it needs all the energy resources, it can get its hands on, you know, coal offers the cheapest uh, source of power generation and, you know, there's just no running away from it.
0: Absolutely. And in terms of renewables as well, do you think that India is in the right direction, if not uh, already with, with the projects that are underway?
1: Yeah, so I think it's a no-brainer for India. You know, a country with um, I'm not much of an expert on on solar and, and wind power generation, but from what I can tell, a country with with plenty of sunshine, so solar power definitely holds a lot of potential for India. Wind power, perhaps, uh, to a smaller extent. I think one of the challenges for the country with regard to solar power. Uh, and I know that there is now thinking around how to uh, overcome that uh, problem as well, is the India's over-dependence, very heavy reliance on China uh, for for solar uh, panels. Uh, so, you know, the, the country is uh, wanting to step up its uh, indigenous uh, manufacturing uh, capability. I know it is attracting, it's it's uh, inviting a lot of investment uh, into that area as well. And, you know, so as a result, that is uh, definitely the, the way to go. But um, I think it would be sort of um, misleading to assume that uh, that renewable power can very quickly uh, displace coal in India. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this year the the country might use even more coal uh, than last year. you know, ensuring that um, there is power generation available, especially manufacturing, India wants to is wants to attract more investment into manufacturing. you know that depends on reliable supply of electricity as well. So these are quite you know complex interconnected webs. Uh, which is why I say that uh, you know one has to take a very careful, cautious and pragmatic approach uh, to transitioning uh, to newer newer fuels, greener fuels, which uh, I think then the, the country is overall on the right path uh, on that.
0: Right. In your view, what are the emerging technologies that are helping transform the energy industry?
1: So, uh, again, I'm very... Um, As a believer, essentially, in the need for continued investment in oil and gas or, you know, the traditional fossil fuels, uh, even if not uh, coal, definitely oil and gas uh, need uh, to be invested in. Uh, It is obviously equally important to try and decarbonize uh, oil and gas. Now, of course, there is considerable debate. Around uh, scope one, two, and three emissions, and you know which one should, what sequence it should come in, or who should do what, and you know we'll we'll not go down that um, that route. Uh, you know maybe leave it for another day, but I think uh, just talking about the upstream, and you know the because this is where the oil and gas industry with with let's say you know uh, deep pockets are very close relationship historically with technology and being at the forefront of technology, I think can play a very important role. So that, that goes to essentially scope one emissions, which is reducing emissions, flaring, methane flaring, especially in oil and gas production. So I think carbon capture, uh, carbon capture, utilization and storage or ca- ca- carbon capture and storage, to my mind, is one technology that needs uh, probably much more investment, attention, um, and just general policy support uh, than what it is getting right now across the world. So um, India is is not a major producer of oil and gas, but it is a modest producer. So uh, I think definitely this is one technology that India should uh, look at encouraging. It's not a very cheap technology at the moment. It's not one that uh, all oil and gas producers can afford. So perhaps it needs some sort of a policy support and uh, incentives. Now, another reason I like CCUS is that um, the technology uh, or essentially the concept or the principle is the same that can be deployed in other uh, energy intensive uh, industries as well. And uh, perhaps equally importantly for India in uh, the coal sector as well. So abating emissions that happen uh, at the coal power plant. So uh, that is one. And, um, you know, I think wind and and solar power uh, and, uh, again, the technologies that have enabled uh, the the costs to go down rapidly in in recent years. I think India is doing quite well already on that front.
0: Right. And finally, let's talk a little bit about the challenges ahead for the industry. I think in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of uh, changes in direction like we spoke about earlier in the conversation. So according to you, what are the key challenges that will shape this whole pathway to the energy transition and to uh, net zero?
1: You mentioned the word transition. (laughs) So I think uh, above everything else, a level-headed, pragmatic approach to energy transition, which keeps energy security firmly in sight. I think that is the biggest challenge and and the biggest opportunity to get things right uh, for the energy sector. Now, feeling passionately about a, a cleaner environment and sustainable use of natural resources is good, without doubt. Um, Wanting to accelerate that process is also understandable, but big decisions should be taken with a careful assessment of how the world's current energy needs are being met, uh, how we will replace fossil fuels with cleaner alternatives, BTU for BTU, so, you know, we have to do um, our calculations right over there. So, and and this replacement, you know, one is not talking about just in, in the lab or in pilot projects, but commercially, uh, on scale, and affordably. Uh, we cannot make rash decisions based on simplistic or reductive thinking. Um, energy supply is just too fundamental. Uh, to our existence and our way of life and our economic growth uh, to be trifled with. Uh, And that takes me to the point of investment. I think just not enough investment is happening in um, the upstream sector, um, in uh, producing oil and gas, as well as the downstream refining sector, actually. So, uh, you know, both of these are... uh, potential flashpoints uh, for the future. We need to find a way to turn this tide um, or be resigned to live with the consequences, uh, You know, which will be just more energy commodity crisis and more super cycles. Uh, if you don't want that, uh, you know, we need to stop, re-examine and change course right now.
0: Right. Varnana, this was such a pleasure talking to you and thank you for your great insights and for joining us today on the energy connects podcast really appreciate it
1: my pleasure thank you very much for having me
0: and a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in and we hope that you enjoyed this episode you can check out more podcasts videos and comprehensive content on the energy industry at energyconnects.com. i'll be back with more guests from the industry in the next episode of the energy connects podcast until then thank you and goodbye